Last week, as Jason opened up the series, he drew attention to the salutation of Paul's letter in 1 Thessalonians, specifically the lines, uh, the opening lines of grace and peace. And Jason pointed out rightly that those words and the other words in the greeting communicated Paul's affection for that church and those believers. Not only Paul's affection, but the Lord's affection for that church and love for that church. And those feelings of warmth, warmth and affection only become more overt as we move into chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along in your Bible. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. But I'm going to read the first 12 verses in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our approval, excuse me, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we prayed and and, and sang earlier in the worship service that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. And that you would come and do the things you did at first. And that's a very fitting prayer in light of what's said here in 1 Thessalonians 2. That Paul is pleading with them to remember and know the work that you did among them at first. And I pray, Lord, as Paul reminds them, you would be reminding us and leading us deeper into gospel joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in this opening section of chapter 2, Paul is doing two main things. He's defending his own ministry and he's commending the way he went about his ministry to them. And these two things, commending and defending his ministry, are foreshadowed something he wrote in chapter 1. I want to go back and read that very briefly. 
So just a few verses, 4, 5, 6, and 7 from chapter 1. This is what Paul writes. For we know, excuse me, yeah, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. So to summarize those those verses, through the preaching of the gospel by Paul and others, they became believers, genuine, sincere, authentic believers. And the gospel ministry that happened among them, to use a word from chapter two, was not in vain. That's why Paul calls them brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, that is people adopted into God's forever family. Paul also speaks of the gospel coming in power and with full conviction and with joy in the Holy Spirit. These are all signs that their conversion was sincere, genuine, authentic. They are, in fact, believers. He even speaks of them as becoming imitators of them and of the Lord. These are things that believers do. You follow your spiritual fathers and mothers and then example what they do and and follow the Lord. So they see an example of Christianity then they start to follow that and walk it out in their own lives. And then they become, even it says, even examples to others. If we were to describe what Paul's talking about here in just a few words, we would say spiritual parenting that helps children know how to walk. All that's pretty clear, I think, from those verses. But something has happened when we come to chapter 2, or at least something in addition to those things is going on. While Paul cares deeply for these believers, when he comes to chapter 2, he seems to be on the defensive. Like he's got to remind these believers of who he is and how he lived among them. If you have a Bible, you can look at it in your own Bible. Sometimes it's helpful just to see these things written on the page. So I'll call out a verse and I'm just going to read a few phrases as that, uh, that are mentioned. They'll be on the screen as well. But in verse 1, we read, For you yourselves know. Then he comes to verse 2. As you know. Verse 5. As you know. Then in verse 9. For you remember. Verse 10. You are witnesses. And then in verse 11, for you know. What was it that they knew? What was it that they were to remember? What was it that they were witnesses of? Paul's reminding these believers of the spiritual parenting they received. Evidently, some in Thessalonica were calling into question the genuineness of these believers. And not only were they calling into question the genuineness of these believers, but also Paul's sincerity and why he was doing what he did. Look at it like this. You buy a car. It's a great car. Bought at a great price from a great salesperson at a great dealership. And you're happy with it. The car fits your needs. You're not oversold. You weren't cheated. And you bring the car home. And you have no reason to call into question the salesperson or your excitement. They seemed trustworthy. They answered all your questions and were thoughtful and showed you kind of, it's a used car, but they showed you the accident report and how to get a clean bill of health, so to speak. But then your neighbor comes over and says, so you got a new car in the driveway. 
Now this neighbor just so happens to work at the competing or competing dealership. He says, did you get it inspected first? Oh, you didn't. Hmm. They put blinker fluid in it? Because of this dealership, it's known for, you know, I mean, I don't want to, they cut corners. And now all of a sudden, you have questions in your mind you didn't have before. The odometer said 25,000 miles, but is it really 50? (laughs) They said they checked the brakes, but are the brakes going to work? I think something like that is what's happening here to the church in Thessalonica. False teachers wanted to win over, or perhaps we could say win back, these Thessalonians. Some of you have experienced this when you became a Christian. You heard the gospel from someone you considered a spiritual mother or father. You were called into God's kingdom. And you began to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Then for some reason or another, you move to another city and you don't have contact with that church and that pastor near as much as you used to. And then your spouse, who's not really into Jesus, says to you, this Jesus stuff is fine, I suppose, but don't get carried away. Because what about the age of the earth? What about the Bible's view of women? And what about all the contradictions in the gospel? And what about all those crazy TV preachers who just want our money That's probably what your pastor wants as well. He doesn't love you. His godliness is just a mask for greed. For some of you, that's not theoretical. And when you frame the context like that, which I don't think it's just me coming in and trying to create a context. When you look at that as the context as it really is, all of a sudden, these first 12 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 begin to pop. With Paul's pastoral concern and love. Let me, I know we read them. I want to read them again. But now with all of that context in mind. Look at what Paul says. For you yourselves know brothers. And you are brothers and sisters. That our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. As you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much uh, of conflict, Acts chapter 17. For our appeal did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, as we could have taken up offerings, but we didn't. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God in some cold, you know, dispassionate way. We were were ready not just to preach the gospel with joy, but also ourselves. Because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children. 
We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom, in his, excuse me, his own kingdom and glory. Do you see how much love and pastoral concern Paul has for them? I said at the beginning that Paul is doing two main things in these verses. He's defending the way he went about ministry, but he's also commending the way he went about ministry to them. And and I think to us as well. Having been called into the kingdom, he's saying, this is how I walked in a manner worthy of God. And this is how you can walk in a manner worthy of God too. Thessalonica was a huge port city in the capital of Macedonia, which is now in Greece, Thessalonica is something like 100,000 people, they say. So think Boston or Massachusetts, which I know are bigger than that, but, but think port city like that. And Paul goes to Thessalonica. He preaches. He's opposed. He comes back the next week. He preaches. He's opposed. He comes back a third week. He preaches. He's opposed. You read all about it in Acts chapter 17. They live this. Paul's visit to Thessalonica was somewhere around A.D. 48, just give or take. And then he and his team, they moved on. Paul was on a missionary journey, kind of moving around the Mediterranean. And about a year and a half later, Paul likely gets news of what's happening. How he's being discredited. And how the assurance of these believers is fading. And so he writes to the church in Thessalonica the very words we're reading this morning. I can tell you that when I first became a Christian... I needed this. I had a lot to figure out. I had grown up in a Christian home, so I had, um, you know, a good jump on things in a sense, but there was so much I still had to figure out. I mean, becoming a Christian is figuring some things out, but you only figure them out in miniature. You grow in those, the things you learn. You need spiritual parenting. Maybe some of you are 50 years old and your parents are no longer a part of your life in a meaningful way. But now for the first time in your life, you're coming alive to God and you need this. You need spiritual mothers and fathers to help you grow in your understanding of what it means to walk with a God in a way that's worthy of him. To need spiritual parenting doesn't mean you're dumb. It makes you normal. It's true for us. It was true for these Christians in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And now I've been using the language of spiritual parenting. And I've read the verses that showed it. But let me show you explicitly where I'm drawing that language from. So verse 7 and then 11 and 12, we read this. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Then down in verse 11 and 12. For you know how. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, if we're familiar with Paul's ministry and the letters he wrote, this imagery of spiritual fathering is not a surprising reference when we think about the character and the ministry and the letters of the Apostle Paul. In, 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 to a letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this idea of spiritual fathering doesn't catch us off guard. But the language of spiritual mothering from the apostle Paul does catch us off guard. Or at least it should. It's supposed to be a little bit jarring. 
Because everywhere Paul went, or at least nearly everywhere Paul went, he got beat up. Tells people about Jesus and they beat him up. He's a tough dude. His traveling companion, I can imagine how thankful he was for this. One of his friends, he meets up with him in Acts chapter 16 and then through the rest of, most of the rest of the book, we read the word we. It's Luke. Luke shows up with him and in Colossians chapter 4, um, it speaks of Luke as a physician. It's a pretty good thing to have a traveling physician with you when everywhere you go, you get beat up for Jesus. The way Paul ends his letter to the church in Galatians is like this. Let no one trouble me for the words I'm writing to you because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. It's not just that Paul has skin in the game. It's that he's lost skin in the game. We've all seen some TV show or some movie. I'm thinking, I've alluded to the show 24 a couple times at church, so I have seen it and did enjoy it. Um, it's a violent show, so I'm not necessarily commending it to you. But there's multiple times in that series where all of a sudden, out of the blue, of course, Kiefer Sutherland, Jack Bauer has to take off his shirt to do something because obviously it's better to do it without my shirt. But in that moment, you, it will scan his back and, you know, Hollywood, you know, uh, cosmetics and whatnot. But he's clearly been tortured. And there's always this gravity that falls on the faces of like everybody else in the room with him. And then us at home like, oh, Jack Bauer. Paul here is saying, I have those marks on my body for Christ. That's how he ends the letter in Galatians. Flogged in this city, stoned in that city. But here, to the church in Thessalonica, he says, the gospel made him gentle. So gentle he likens his ministry to that of a nursing mother. A nursing mother hears her tiny infant crying for spiritual milk, not even using the proper words or even at times discernible words. And a mother leaps up, forget it that it's the middle of the night, and is there to help her hungry child. To feed and nourish and protect. Paul says, that's, that's what I was for you. And then that's what I want you to be for others. He's also a spiritual father. Paul encouraged them. You can do this. God is with you. And he exhorted them. Don't do this. Do this instead. So a high school graduation yesterday. And they're calling out the names of the seniors. Giving them diplomas. And it's fairly quiet and subdued. And you know thank you. And then this one young man receives his diploma. And from the back of the room. The dad yells. I love you son. And I'm on the stage just losing it. That's what Paul is doing for these believers. I love you. God loves you. You can do this. I'll come back to what I said at the start. Paul's character was being called into question. So he's defending his ministry, but he's also commending his ministry to others. We don't have to put it back on the screen, but that phrase, walk worthy, comes from chapter 12, or verse 12. It's a phrase he uses in Colossians chapter 1. It's a phrase he uses in Ephesians chapter 4. Walk worthy of the calling you've received. So it's a thing Paul circles back to over and over again. The point being that spiritual parents teach their children how to walk. Spiritually. When I first became a Christian, again, I, I needed this. I had all sorts of questions. Growing up in a Christian home, which was great, but then when all this happened, I'm at college for a lot of that time. I come home for a summer or two here and there on weekends, but I, I needed people on the college campus to help me, and local churches and pastors to disciple me, teach me how to read the Bible, how to share the gospel, how to 
uh, date a, a woman in a way that honors the Lord. These are important things. Paul's saying, I did spiritual parenting for you and I want you to do that for others. And he mentions, I'll just bring out four areas where this is true. Very briefly. Paul says spiritual parenting leads to walking worthy of the calling when it begins and aims at the purpose of pleasing God. Our purpose is not to please people, not to please ourselves, but to please God. Look at verses 4 and 6 again. We read, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Then down in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, implying, but we sought it from God. The aim of your Christian walk should not be to please people, but to please God. That means you maintain doctrinal fidelity when others fudge. And someone asked me what I meant by that phrase for service, so I should probably define it. <laughs> fidelity, as opposed to infidelity, it's a marriage word normally. Doctrinal fidelity is, is, that, is that when the trials come, you remain faithful to doctrine. Prizing the glory of God and his favor among everyone else means that when others try and wed their politics to their Christianity, you don't. It means when non-Christians tell you it's not okay to have certain views, you humbly disagree. There's a man who attends our church, has been here for years, and, and the company he works for, that's a big company, um, global company. It's, it's not that there's outright persecution, there's no one stoning him, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to move into leadership at his company without espousing certain views that are antithetical to the gospel. And that's really hard. But walking worthy of the calling that we've received means aiming to please God. And trusting that even when you do that, even when it's hard, he will provide. Another area of walking worthy means being careful with the way we use words. Picking up in the middle of verse 2 and 3, a part of 3 and then 4, we read this. Paul says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. This is word language. Declare is what we do with speech. In the midst of much conflict for our appeal, this is again word language, it's, it's, it's speaking language, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Walking worthy means being careful about how we use words. Christians don't use flattery. Flattery is speaking to people in a way that you think they want to hear so that they can then say the things you want to hear. That's manipulative. Christians don't speak to deceive or manipulate. They build language upon truth. Not as what Paul writes here, error or impurity. In another New Testament letter, James would write that if we don't rein our tongue, then our religion, his words, not mine, is worthless. Hey, Benjamin, that is a fantastic sermon uh, this morning. It's great. I love that bow tie. Um, that beard is looking epic. Um, hey, now that Jason's gone, 
I was just wondering if we could change. Jason's not gone. He's just in the basement, guys. (laughs) It's really easy for me to say that because no one's done that to me. But it happens so easily, doesn't it? We also speak here of work ethic. Paul writes in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Well, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul says, back in verse 6, that though they could have made demands as apostles, so they could have taken up offerings for him to do his ministry, he didn't because he didn't want to give them any ammunition to fire back at him as though he was greedy. Instead, he worked a side job, which wasn't a side job. It was the real job so that he could pay the bills and do ministry on the side, which is the way almost everyone here at this church does ministry. It's how all of our elders except myself and Jason do ministry. Praise God, you freed us up to do it full time, but everybody else in that elder room gives up their time um, out of their free time. And Paul is saying here, that's actually a great thing. Would that we had more women and men here at this church that were so consumed with the, uh, a vision of God's glory and the good of his people in a local church that they would gladly give of their free time to see his kingdom built in local churches. Not so we can be a bigger and better church, but so that people could be built up in the gospel. Paul's commending this to them as a good thing. Finally, I'll mention relationships. Paul writes verse 8. There's a few places this is touching. I'll just mention probably the chief one. He says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, as though that's a small thing, the greatest message in the universe, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. He's not some fly-by-night preacher. He's going to come in, do his thing, and move on to the next city. In fact, when he hears they're struggling, he writes a letter back. If you've been calling community church your church for some time, I'm not talking two weeks or anything like that, and you don't know people very well, uh, if you don't feel all that connected, uh, that might be our fault. And I am sorry about that. Uh, if you've been coming here and you don't feel, you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get involved. Yeah, people greet me and they say hi, but, but I don't know what's next. I am sorry if that's not been clear. Uh, we would love to grow in our ability to do that well. But I would also ask, uh, could you have a role to play in this? Do you want to be known? Do you want relationships? And if so, do you do the sorts of things that would cultivate those relationships? Coming Early, staying late. If you come late and leave early, I can just tell you it's going to be difficult. I didn't say this first service. I should have said it. Uh, we have a welcome dinner, uh, June 9th. We would love to invite you to that. If, if, you, if you put in that green card, hopefully we tried to reach out to you if you've put one in over the last few months. But if you haven't, that fell through the cracks. Come see me. It's, it's June 9th. We would love to have you there. Because the point for me isn't so much who's at fault, our church or, or some individual. The point is, me. how do we go forward? How do we grow? How do we do what Paul is commending to us here? Because walking with God always has and always does mean walking with his people. 
The idea of a solo Christian serving Jesus is crazy to the New Testament. I was talking with a man at our church a few weeks ago, and he mentioned to me that at our church, he doesn't think most people disagree with what's preached, and I think that's true. I'm thankful for that. But he says that most people, most weeks, while they appreciate what is preached, if we stopped most people at the door of our church, and he brought it out, thankfully, he said, or any church, They'd have trouble knowing, but what do I do now? I, 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 don't, I don't disagree. That I, I received. Christians want the word of God preached to us. And then we want to be able to go walk out in a manner worthy of the calling we've received in the gospel. And we don't often know how to do that. And sometimes preachers struggle to put it into language for the everyday parts of life. But I hope this passage, and you can see it, that Paul, that's what he wants to do. Christians walking worthy of the calling we've received changes who we primarily aim to please. We primarily aim to please God. Walking worthy shapes the way we use words. Christians speak with integrity. Walking worthy changes your work ethic. Christians work hard, motivated to do ministry if they have to, just in the kind of the free crannies of their life. And walking worthy changes the way you view church. Not in what can I get, but how can I become more tender-hearted toward the brothers and sisters here in the faith? And I hope these categories at least begin to provide some direction along the path of your pilgrimage. As we close, I want to stress something. Because this all of the first 11 verses, I think, hinge upon a scene. If we see them rightly, we're seeing just one little word there in verse 12, which is this, calls. None of the things we're doing here, or Paul's commending to us to do, earn God's love. All of this doing, all of this loving, all of this speaking is not what calls us into the kingdom. God is the one who calls us into his kingdom. Another way to say it is this. To receive spiritual parenting must mean there was a spiritual birth. And that's the work of God. But if we have been born spiritually, then we will begin to walk spiritually in these types of ways. I want to read just briefly and we'll close and pray. It's, it's almost humorous. I don't, it's, it's not a humorous passage at all. But the first few verses in the book of Acts chapter 8. Um, th- th- this is Paul before he was a Christian, right? So they're gonna, he's going to be called Saul in the passage. But he gets his name changed throughout the book of Acts. But just hear the way that the Apostle Paul was none of these things before God showed up in his life. We read this. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So here you've got this guy talking about tenderheartedness and gentle, approving of the execution of the first Christian in the book of Acts. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over Stephen. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering from house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's not humorous. But God does have a sense of humor. Of pulling the people farthest from God and making them significant spiritual mother and father to generations of believers throughout the world. He did it for Paul. 
And he has been doing it to us. And I am thankful for that. Would that it grows more. I'm going to close us in prayer. Invite the worship team to lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is not only glorious on the front side. When you call us into relationship with you, though we are dead in our sins, you speak life into us. But the life you speak into us only grows. Lord, help us. Help us to be the kind of church you desire us to be. Help us to see you as the the highest and most wonderful being in the universe to live for and serve, but not in a slavish way, that we would also see it as our greatest good and to know that all along you're speaking over us love and compassion. You're yelling from the back of the auditorium, I love you. May we hear all of that this morning and be compelled into service in deeper ways. In Christ's name we pray.